Well, this morning I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. We've been in a summer psalm series, going through different psalms, uh, different psalms as they pertain to uh, David's life in particular, psalms that he would have written last week. We looked at, you remember, uh, Psalm 23, where he said, the, the famous beginning, I remember, the, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Many of us have that passage uh, completely memorized, but it certainly is probably one of the more famous psalms within the Psalter. But this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 8, and if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 450 in your pew Bible. And in the psalm, I think what David is really trying to put forth to us, as we see in the first verse and we see in the last verse, the same exact words. The first line is the same as the last line in Psalm chapter 8. And what David is concerned about this morning is the majestic name of God, or the majestic name of Yahweh. And so I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm chapter 8, starting in verse 1. O Lord... Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have put in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All the sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens. And the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name. In all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And that it is pure. Lord, we pray this morning that we will be made more like Christ as a result of looking at this passage together. Thank you for your servant David in writing this psalm. Being a man after your own heart, we thank you for his example to us. But particularly we thank you how he, put, how he points us to Jesus. who was perfect. Never committed the sins that David had committed. But was the one who was perfectly righteous and we are so thankful that that righteousness has been imputed to us as unworthy sinners. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will bless the preaching and reading of your word now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In our culture, and in a lot of other cultures, we put a lot of stock into names, don't we? When we think about what we're going to be naming our child, when we think about what we're going to be naming a new dog that we might have gotten, some of you might love your cars a little too much, and you might name your car, or whatever. We, we kind of have a, a we, we put a real heavy emphasis on names. Names are important. I can remember when we were thinking about what to name our daughter Nora. There, there was kind of two sides to it. You want, you want the name to have significance, right? You, you want it to actually mean something, but then on the other side, you want it to sound nice. Some of you might not like your name, and you thought to yourself for your whole life, I just don't like my name. Why did my parents name me Whatever it is. But I remember you can, you, naming Nora, and you can go to the store, you can buy all kinds of books, you can open them, and you can find the origins of the name. Okay, the name Nora, what does it mean? Where does it come from? What kind of country did it come from? All of that. Some of you, I'm sure, have done that. But we put a lot of stock 
into names. And this morning, David is putting a lot of stock into the name of the Lord. That it's not even just a a simple name that we're going to have in this life, that we're going to have for the 70, 80, 90 years, whatever God gives us on this earth. It's not even just a name that's going to last that long, but it's the eternal name of God. That is what he is concerned about here this morning in Psalm chapter 8. Again, the first line, you see, look down at your, your, your Bible. In the first line, it's, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The very last line in verse 9 of chapter 8 is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So it is the very name of Yahweh, it is the very name of God that David is concerned about this morning. So you see that, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, begins and ends this chapter, indicating that everything else that comes in between has to do with the name of Yahweh, the name of God, the statements that David makes, the questions that David asks. All of them are in relation to the the name of God, to the majesty of the name of God. But you notice that first verse, he says, O Lord... Our Lord, it kind of sounds redundant, kind of sounds like he's repeating himself a little bit. Why would he say, O Lord, our Lord? But in fact, take note, look down again at your Bible in in verse 1, and you see that first word, Lord, very likely in most all your translations, is all capital letters. Does everybody else have that? Everybody else see all capital letters for the first Lord? And that indicates the word Yahweh in the Hebrew. So the word Yahweh was a very dear name, For the Jews, when they referred to God, it was Yahweh. It was a very close name. It was the the name that, that, that represented God's covenantal faithfulness to His people. So anytime you see the word Lord or the word God in the Old Testament, and it's in all caps, the Hebrew word behind that is Yahweh. I know many of you have probably heard that word, but that is the word behind the all capital Lord and the all capital God. So again, Yahweh is God's covenantal name. It's indicating his covenantal faithfulness, that he has this relationship with his people and that he is going to remain faithful to the people of God. It's the most used name for God in the Old Testament. It's very close to the verb. So, So the word Lord here is a noun, but it's very close to the verb to be, indicating God is is self-existent, that he is the eternal one. That as the Lord, that he has absolutely no need of anybody else. That he doesn't depend at all on you. He doesn't depend at all on me. He is completely self-existent. He is completely independent of anybody. So this name of Yahweh indicates God's, both his covenant faithfulness to his people, and it indicates his self-existent eternality. That he is the God above all, and he doesn't need Anybody. So David begins by saying, O Yahweh, our Lord. So we've cleared up the first Lord, but look at that second use of Lord. You notice that it is not in all capital letters. So he goes, O Yahweh, our Lord. So the second use is simply indicating or ascribing to Yahweh his lordship. Or the fact that, that he is the ruler. The fact that he is the master of all. So it could be translated, O Yahweh, our master. How majestic is your name in all the earth. O Yahweh, our ruler. O Yahweh, our sovereign. O Yahweh, our king. How majestic is your name in all the earth. So it's describing the fact that God, he is ruler over the entire earth, in all of the earth. So here David is. He's in Israel. 
So Yahweh, his name is not to be majestic just simply in the land of Israel. His name is to be majestic in all of the earth, in every corner of the earth. The majesty of the name of Yahweh is to spread across the entire globe. And when we even think about the word uh, majestic, we kind of think of kings and queens, right? If you ever got to meet a king and queen... I don't know if any of you have, but if you ever get to meet a king and queen, you can you walk up, you, know, you do a little curtsy, and you say, "Your Majesty." But God here alone is the one who is worthy, truly worthy of this title, "Your Majesty." That in all of the earth, His name is majestic as the Creator King of the universe. His name is majestic in every single part of it, and so that's what David is trying to stoke in us this morning as we begin this passage. Oh Yahweh. Our sovereign king, how majestic is your name on every part of the globe. And so everything that flows from this brings us back to the fact that his name is majestic in all of the earth. So look at the end. Look at the end again of verse 1 actually. So Yahweh has this majestic name. But look at what David says about his glory. He says, you have set your glory Above the heavens. So again, picturing his majesty here. So we already have said that the majesty of God is spread all across the globe. But now he says that his majesty, that his glory is is spread above the heavens. That the, the heavens are covered with the majesty and the glory of the Lord. Just like the earth is. And I think a, a verse like this, this, this first verse, this last verse in this chapter. It, it does two things. It, first, it gives us the confidence in our God. It gives us a deep confidence, steadfastness in God, and trust in God. And two, it evokes our praise to God. I think sometimes it's easy to not think that God really has it all in control. We practically live like that. We might acknowledge that with our brains. But when when it comes to the rubber hitting the road during the week, I think we often don't live as though God has everything under control every single facet of our lives, that we wake up and we don't even really think much about the fact that he has it in control, but a verse like this, O Lord, our Lord, our majestic is your name in all of the earth, that should give us a bedrock confidence in our God that David obviously has here. I mean, we, we get up and watch the news, right? And the first thing, or the last thing we watch is the news. And it's really just not news, it's just reporting the latest sin. It's just reporting the latest murder. It's reporting the latest rape or the latest problem that has happened in our community or in our town or in our state or country or whatever. And it's easy to get down about that kind of thing and wonder, God, where are you in all of this? I thought your majesty was supposed to be all over the entire globe. Why is all of this happening? But when we dwell on verses like this, we should grow in our confidence in our king. That he is the king over everything. Verses like this give us a view, a big view of God. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So when you think about God, what comes into your mind? Is it a small God or is it a big God? Is it a, a big view of God? Once, once you get that big view of God, the, the praise and the adoration that verses like this evoke begin to erupt. 
It begins to come out of you like lava from a volcano. That you start to get this vision of God as big and glorious. His majesty is completely over the entire earth. And then that evokes the praise and the worship from our hearts that should be bubbling out. And that he is worthy of him. When we understand him as he truly is. As the sovereign king over everything. We want to be a church that has a big view of God. That has a high view of God that evokes from us. That that view evokes from us worship and praise that he is due. I talk to so many Christians. Whether it's in Maine. Whether it's uh, friends around the country. Or different churches that I'm able to visit. And you just begin talking with them. And you start talking about the Lord. And you begin to sense really quickly that their view of God is about as high as they can look. It, It doesn't get any past eye level for them. They're not like this. They're like this. And that's sad. That we wake up in the morning and we aren't thinking about the majesty of God. We aren't thinking about Him in those great grand terms, knowing that He is the King of everything. We practically live as though it's just right here. But look at verse 2. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So David is saying here that the enemies of God, the enemies of God are silenced by the coos and the cries of babies. But I want you to draw your attention to the verses 3 and 4. There's this incredible question that David asks. He says, when I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? So David here, he's, he's observing the creation. He's, you can almost see him doing it, looking out. Like you probably have so many times. You look out at the stars and look out at the moon. And you just think about the greatness of God. How big he is. But this great creation that God has put into place. And David here, he's considering the creation. That he, and he's drawn to the greatness of the creator. Just looks at what the creator has done. And it draws him in to God. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who is truly a master at something? Somebody who just has something Mastered. Maybe it could be an educator. Maybe it could be a musician. Maybe it could be an artist or an athlete or something. And whatever they do in their field, they make it look easy, right? You just watch certain guys in the football field, like Tom Brady. He just makes it look easy, right? Look at other artists. Sometimes I, I, I interact with some pastors who are just particularly gifted at preaching God's word. And I'm just like, it's incredible the that God has given you the abilities that he's given. And many of you have great abilities in your occupations and in your hobbies and what you do. And you've been very gifted in that way. And sometimes when I see what you've done or I've seen what others have done or you see what people have done, you step back and you're just like, man, how did you do that? It's incredible. And that's what David's doing here with God's creation. He's just, he's stepping back and he's, he's looking at, the works of God's fingers. You notice how we, how we put it that way? When I consider the heavens, the works of the stars, it, the works of your hands kind of thing, just what your fingers have done, he's in awe about that. I mean, we look at Katahdin, and we say, wow, that's a, that's a pretty big mountain. But those of you who have seen the Rockies, or those of you who have seen the Alps, or maybe you've seen Everest, you know Katahdin's a little baby in comparison to a lot of those. 
And then when you consider maybe Everest in comparison to the rest of the world, you say, well, Everest is tiny in comparison to the rest of the world. And then you compare the world with the sun. And you, well, the, the earth is tiny in comparison to the sun. And then the sun with the galaxy. And on and on we could go to show the grandeur of creation, all of which David says was simply the works of God's fingers. He didn't have to put his, when he decided to hang the moon where he hung it, he didn't have to put his back into it. He didn't have to lift with his legs and get the moon there. It's just the work of his fingers. It's just a simple act of God to create all that he has created. And all of this should cause us to wonder the same exact thing that David wonders in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that God would would have him in mind. David's been given us this big view of God, that, that God's over all things. And I think our assumption automatically is that, that since God is so powerful and that he is over everything, that surely he, we will not be noticed by him. Sometimes it is easy to get that. You reflect on creation like, he probably can't even see me. I'm so insignificant. I'm so small and compared to everything else. But what we see here is that the sovereignty and the greatness of God doesn't leave God disengaged with his people. It keeps him engaged with his people. So what makes God so great is not that he is so big and so vast that he loses sight of the details, but that he is so big and he's so vast, yet never loses sight of any kind of detail. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that we have. That although he is so great and we are so small, that he is still Mindful of us. Isn't that an encouraging thought? That God is mindful of you? That when you wake up in the morning, maybe you're alone in your home, that God is mindful of you? Maybe you have a family, you still feel alone. God is mindful of you? God has his mind set on you? That's an encouraging thought. Anytime there's any kind of sense of loneliness, or that we're alone in the world, or that nobody is really with us, That God is mindful of us. But notice verse 4 again. There's a second part of verse 4. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. And for more clarification on the second point, turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, the author of Hebrews quotes this portion um, from Psalm 8 in his uh, sermon in the book of Hebrews. And you're going to find that starting in verse 6. So Hebrews chapter 2, let me get over this. Too concerned with taking a drink of water than getting over to where I'm supposed to be. So Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So this part of Psalm 8 certainly has bearing on David's life, what he's writing on it, and and the specifics of his life in the here and now. But the author of Hebrews shows us that there's a, a greater fulfillment, that there's a greater meaning that's carried over from the Psalms and brought into the book of Hebrews, namely Christ. So he shows us how to understand the psalm here in light of Christ, that Christ is the true Son of Man. And so we understand this psalm, Psalm chapter 8, in light of Christ, that for a while, Jesus was humbled to this earth, that he took on the the frail and perishable flesh. He was incarnated, that he became man, Yet he was crowned with glory and honor as the one who would suffer. And in his resurrection, all things have been subjected to him under his feet. So the the author of Hebrews takes this passage and interprets it through the lens of Christ. Showing us his incarnation, that he came to earth. And it shows us his death and resurrection. So interesting that this psalm, Psalm 8, shows us both sides of what the church usually really celebrates during the year, right? We come to Christmas time and we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, that he came to earth. We come to Easter time and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, that he came out of the grave and everything is laid in subject under his feet. And this psalm shows us that. But go back to Psalm 8. And when we continue to look at this psalm, again, in his immediate purpose for writing these verses, we begin to see um, an echo, really, from the book of Genesis, where God said to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over all things. So beginning in verse 6, you see him begin to, to, to say, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So man here, David is echoing the, the, command, the dominion command in Genesis. That everything is to be under man. That we are the pinnacle of God's creation. And so we're to have dominion over all of the animals. We're to have dominion over God's creation under God. But notice with me now in verse 9, the closing sentence of this great psalm, the same sentence that David begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So David begins where he began. O Yahweh, our sovereign king, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You have established strength. You set in place the heavens. You are mindful of man. But then even though he, he states that at the beginning. And he begins to rattle all things off. He still comes to the same conclusion. Oh Lord our Lord. How majestic is your name in all of the earth. What is your view of God? What comes into your mind when you think about God. Is the most important thing about you. So when you think about God. What comes in to your mind. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, this past week, and he loves God. He serves Him, reads His Word, prays, has a great relationship with the Lord. But he struggles because he knows both sides of where we're at. On the one side, he understands God as sovereign, as holy, 
as perfect, as just, as good, as all of that that the Bible explains. But then on the other side, he understands himself as sinful, as rotten, as depraved. But how does that reconcile? So he recognizes that God is holy and good. On the other side, that he is bad. How does that somehow come together in a relationship? And that's through the Son of Man that we see here in Psalm chapter 8. That through the Son of Man, he, he brought many sons to glory for the night. He tasted death for us. That's the message of the gospel. That Jesus Christ has come to this earth. That he lived a perfect life on our behalf. That he died our death. That we should have died. And he took our sins upon himself on the cross. And he gave us his righteousness that he tamed in his perfection. And then he came out of the grave, resurrected, and, and won everything. That everything was subjected under his feet. So we stand with him now as though we've accomplished the same with him. He has given all of that to us. That is the message of the gospel. And all of this should cause us to say the same thing that David says twice. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Your name truly is majestic. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to spread this message of you throughout the world, particularly where we are here and now, in this town and in this state, where we want to see your name made famous here. We want you to be worshipped and praised. We thank you, Lord, that this is what these verses bring, uh, confidence in your name gives us a, a steadfast belief that you are God, that you are over all, that you are sovereign, a big, high view of you. And this evokes that praise out of our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you will, you will give us a big view of you. Thank you for this passage. In Christ's name.